Welcome to the Business Psychology Podcast, where we'll be discussing how businesses can use psychology to better understand human behaviour. I'm Rebecca Longman. And I'm Jessica Welch, talking to you from Innovation Bubble, a global consultancy. In each episode, we'll be discussing how psychology applies to current topics in the world of work. Sometimes we'll bring relevant guests, and other times it will just be the two of us. We hope you enjoy the Business Psychology Podcast. Rob Reiner with us, who is one of the founding members of the Center for Evidence-Based Management. And Rob, can you start telling us a little bit about why you started this center? Yeah, sure. So evidence-based practice has been a thing that's been around in various professions for probably around 25 or 30 years. And so, for example, the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, the Center for Evidence-Based Policing, Policymaking, Social Work, Education, and so on. Uh, and a group of us felt that really the centre can try and do for the management profession what those other centres have tried to do for those professions, which is to really facilitate the development of greater use of evidence in practice. So that's really what it was set up to do, mainly through education and advocacy, those two areas. Okay. Um, And so the focus, or certainly what we've seen, seems to be around HR specifically, or uh, because you kind of mentioned management. Yeah. Is is there is that now sort of a an angle that's gone down to towards HR or is it wider than that? That's a really good question. I think interestingly, what's happened is most of the people who were involved in the early stages and in founding it, and many of the people interested now, for one reason or another, it's not a deliberate choice, I think, or, or by design, happen to either come from an HR background or in some cases an organizational psychology background or organizational okay. behavior background. Now why that is I'm not too sure, but we certainly have other people, like some marketing people, uh, a few people do kind of economics type stuff, a few people involved in things like building design, so other fields, facilities management as well. But it does, you're right, it has attracted and seems to have a lot of HR type people involved. Yes, that's for sure. That's interesting. I wonder if if there's, so they've sort of recognized that there's a gap there and that's why it's drawn them in. That's, I think that could be one of the reasons. I think another reason is that historically, I think perhaps HR has, has not been that, well, kind of picking up with you. I guess I'm agreeing with you, actually. But I think mm. it's been picking up with things like organizational data and data analytics and those sorts of issues right. in a way that perhaps marketing has been done for a long time and other fields have for a long time. So maybe it's sort of there. And I think also, particularly in the UK, CIPD, the professional body for HR professionals, has also recognised evidence-based practice as one of their three main principles in their new profession map. So maybe it's also because more HR professionals within management functions have heard of it. So certainly if you talk to other areas of management, uh, I guess a lot may not have heard of it, even though there are movements around, for example, evidence-based accounting and evidence-based finance. I think in HR, maybe people are more likely to have heard of it. Right. Interesting. And what drew you to evidence-based practice in, in the first instance? Yes, yeah, so I've been interested in it, I would say, for just over 20 years. And I first got interested, I think, because when I was teaching on a master's program in organizational psychology at the University of Sheffield many, many years ago, uh, and this is a common feeling, I think, amongst academics, you meet your students some years later, and you say, how's it going? You know, how's work? What are you doing? And of course, the question you want to know is, have you used anything that you learned on the course? Yeah. Typically, the answer was uh, not really. Uh-huh. So, that, so this was like, okay. So, what is the point of this course then? And then, you know, I think initially, 
I was very keen and over keen to blame practitioners uh, to say, you know, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you using more of the stuff we taught you, more of the science you do in master's program universities? Why aren't you doing it more? What's wrong with you? And then over time, I kind of thought, well, actually, it is just not their fault. It's because of the way their jobs are set up. And actually, a lot of the courses that are running universities don't really support people in doing it. And actually, if you look even more closely, I think universities themselves aren't great in supporting practitioners after they qualify to do it. And more broadly, of course, scientific evidence, the stuff you learn at universities, is only one of many different sources of evidence. So I got interested initially, I think, because I was sort of teaching this stuff in HR and organizational psychology. And I think more latterly it became an issue. Well, actually, it's not just a problem of practitioners. It's a problem for academics. It's a problem for the way people are managed and incentivized as well. So, yeah, I've been interested for a long time. And particularly, I think, although evidence-based practice isn't about this, I'm quite interested in for want of a better term, some of the debunking that goes on around certain kinds of practices. So not that they are absolutely useless, but just the way in which some techniques and ideas take off and are seen as, you know, the best thing since sliced bread. But in fact, if you look closely at some of the evidence behind them, it's really not clear they're terribly useful or effective. But nonetheless, they are very popular. And again, that's not just in HR. That's true across many fields. There's certain ideas, they become fads. They become yeah. well established as best practice, mm-hmm. actually. You look a bit closely, dig a little, and it's kind of quite surprising that, that they are so widely used. So I think we've got interest in evidence-based practice because of that as well, just saying we have to clear the decks a bit and get and sort of not do stuff that is pretty clear or very likely to not work. Let's focus on real problems and things that are more likely to work. Mm. So there's actually... So, oh, yeah, go on. No, no, um, you go, Rebecca. Yeah. Uh, a couple of questions I kind of want to ask mm. off the back of that. Um, so the first one is what? why do you think these these fads kind of come into play you know what what's driving that what encourages one thing to become a fad over something else i think a lot of it is is its face validity so it seems to make sense to people at a particular time so uh it kind of and it captures a zeitgeist in some way i think it seems cool, it seems neat, it seems fun, it seems obvious, it seems, oh, why didn't we think of that before? I think those kinds of ideas, those sort of sticky ideas, those instantly appealing ideas, I think are probably those things that do become fads. So I think there's something about the fad itself, but I also think there's something around the context in which people work and what they're actually rewarded for. So certainly my conversations with managers and others if I ask them, well, why are you using this thing? And they say, well, you know what everybody else is. And you go, yeah, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean it's effective. No, but what am I supposed to do? You know, that's what all our competitors are doing. So it sort of makes sense if we do as well, in right. a way. And I kind of get that. I think it does. So I think it's partly that that context. So if you're the person that stands up and says, you know what, I'm not going to do what everyone else is doing because I think it doesn't work. You have to be quite unusual to do that and work inside a system that actually rewards that because typically what's rewarded is doing things, getting stuff done, rolling stuff out, you know, implementing things. That's what's rewarded really, not actually thinking, well, what is the problem? What's the most likely solution? But I think the third thing, so it's partly the, the, the nature of the fad itself, I think is partly what people are rewarded for. But the third thing is, of course, I think the marketing around some of these management fads and fashions is, is obviously quite effective. Uh, they make very large mm. claims, they're very unsupported. People are bombarded with this stuff. You know, if you just go to follow any kind of Twitter feed or LinkedIn group around certain issues, there's the amount of information that is thrown at people about some of these ideas. I think yeah. it isn't in the end that marketing is quite effective. People just, just make sense to people. They see it everywhere. It's ubiquitous. Yeah, it must be, it must work. It must make yeah. sense. 
Yeah. So I think it's probably those three things, really, or a combination of those, yeah. Makes sense. So you mentioned um, earlier on that academic, I guess, data is one only one aspect of, of source of data that people should sure. use for evidence-based. What are the yep. others that they should be looking at? Well, the other thing, so one is sort of scientific evidence, the kind of stuff that's typically published, you know, in peer-reviewed journals or the all kind of problems with that. We won't get into that now, but it, it tends to be published in those kind of scientific peer-reviewed journals. That's one source. The second source, of course, within HR management in general is organizational data itself. That's stuff that's collected within organizations, typically the stuff that's sort of already around. It may be surveys, it may be sales figures, staff turnover, other kinds of stuff you've already got. The third area is the practitioner's own professional expertise. In other words, what do they believe, what do they think about the problems they're dealing with and what they think might be potential solutions. And then the fourth area is stakeholders. So again, for managers, that will be employees, it might be senior managers, it might be directors, it might be customers and clients. What are their views? What are their values around the things you're proposing? Mm -hmm. So the idea of having multiple sources of evidence is one of the key sort of uh, principles really of evidence-based practice in any field that looking at one alone it just isn't isn't good enough you need to sort of partly triangulate to see if you're getting the same picture from these different domains but also more importantly is to contextualize so for example even if you have some really good scientific studies that seem to really clearly point that this particular intervention is effective that information itself is completely useless you need to understand the context you need to organizational data you need to understand as a practitioner and you need to see if it's consistent or not with the values of your stakeholders, because it just may not work, because it doesn't fit, it doesn't work with those kind of people. So the important triangulation is absolutely, and multiple sources, is really crucial in evidence-based practice. Yeah, that's interesting, because yesterday um, we were actually talking to a, a leadership consultant, um, and he was saying that he'd had problems um, with presenting a, a set of data, which I, I put in inverted commas, um, which was, as the person he was presenting it to referred back to him, said, um, it's hearsay, which was basically, um, you know, he'd spoken to some employees in the organization and they had a view on the, the approaches that this, this guy was suggesting that they took. And he said, you know, these people are, are not necessarily happy with this. It's not quite the right way to go. And as I said, the response was, oh, that's hearsay. That's not relevant. Mm. It absolutely is relevant, it sounds like, from what you're saying. Well, it might be. It might be relevant. It might not be. It might be hearsay. It might be biased. It might be important. It might be unimportant. The key thing as well, apart from these ideas of multiple sources, is critically evaluating the quality of that evidence and the relevance of it. So, yeah. for example, maybe you do some interviews with stakeholders and they're all saying, well, we hate this. We don't like it. The question is, how reliable and trustworthy are those views? Now, they may be very or people may be saying it for a particular kind of reason. And sometimes even if people don't like something, uh, that's not in itself reason enough not to do it. So I think it sort of depends on understanding, yeah, it says relevance and the quality of that. And who did, you know, if you speak to some stakeholders, well, are they the right stakeholders? Is it just some people with particular opinions and why do they hold those opinions? But the same principle would apply to scientific evidence, organizational data, and your professional expertise. You always have to say, is this actually reliable and trustworthy information or evidence? And is it relevant to the problem I'm trying to understand here? But you're right, it certainly could be. So just dismissing mm -hmm. something as hearsay is not 
really very useful or like simply just saying something's a wonderful study is actually not very useful or saying right. wow this is an, an awesome randomized control trial is also not very useful because you need that context you need to think about it so it's reliability and its relevance to the problem at hand so yes but it certainly could be yeah right that kind of it's, it's the critical evaluation yeah yeah and and how can we then how can practitioners themselves ensure that personal bias does not interfere with their kind of um, yeah. when they're when they're judging the data that they're collecting. So if they have all the yes. sources, sure. But how can they ensure that that their personal bias is not getting in the way of that? Well, that is precisely why you actually look at your own professional expertise as a source of evidence and information. So, for example, it may be you may have a particular view, say, I don't know, about whatever it is in HR, it might, or whatever management, it might be something about what motivates people. And I use a practitioner, may say, might believe, oh, I really think what motivates people is bonuses. And that may be a very strongly held view, and you may believe you have really good professional expertise in your career that, that sort of supports that. That's fine. But within evidence-based practice perspective, you would say, this is what I think, this is why I think it. And then the reason why you believe that would be subject to scrutiny. In other words, well, where's that experience from? Uh, are you sure you've actually remembered all that right? Uh, how many examples have you got of this? Is that actually a reliable source of inv evidence information? Although you do believe that, is that experience you've gained somewhere else in three or four or five organizations relevant to this organization? Is it relevant from these employers to those employers? So you critically evaluate your own experience just as much, partly going back to your question, because you've got to say, how am I, what am I bringing to this and how are my biases affecting it? And the point about evidence-based practice is it doesn't remove biases, but what it hopefully does is help control, remove, make you more aware of some of them. You can never remove all these biases, but you can hopefully do some of that. Because I think as a practitioner, what's a real challenge is, you are required to and expected to bring your experience to bear. However, in many contexts, your experience may actually not be very reliable for that problem, mm -hmm. simply because there are certain conditions that need to be in place to develop expertise in something such as practice, 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 such as a stable environment, such as getting really quick feedback about what you did to see if it worked or not. And when we're talking about HR stuff, or lots of management stuff, it's actually quite hard to learn from experience in that way. It doesn't mean you shouldn't bring experience into it, but it means you should critically evaluate it as much as anything else. And you still will be biased, but hopefully the idea is you do it with other people and other people are better at spotting your biases than you are. That's partly mm -hmm. why it's quite important to do it as a team. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, this idea of bias, actually. Um, so one of the areas that we work in quite frequently is um, looking at the non-conscious side of things, so these kind of implicit yeah. biases. Um, and, uh, well, you know, depending on how, um, you know, concrete this research is or, or this, this idea is, but there's some, there's some evidence out there apparently that suggests, you know, somewhere between 70 and 80% of what we do, what we think, how we act, the emotions that we have are implicit, they're non-conscious. So how do we manage for that? Do you think we're doing enough to access that insight, that part of us that, um, that is obviously crucially affecting the, the outcome of the yeah. decisions that we're making? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how much we do really do about that. But, but part of the definition of evidence-based practice is it's about the conscientious, explicit and judicious use 
of different sources of evidence and information. And key two key parts, I guess, are, are explicit and judicious. So you actually say, what is, what is this judgment based on? So if you are making a sort of judgment about, I don't know, whatever it is, some organizational data where you say, look, this trend, we see a trend, your know, engagement's going down, whatever it happens to be. The question is, what is that claim based on? Make it explicit. So what are you saying? You're saying since last year it's gone down 2%. Fine, what does that mean? Yes, it's gone down, so what? And I think it's about being explicit about what the claims are, what those claims are based on. So that's, in a sense, one way of, of I think, you can't, again, you can't deal with it, but you can at least try and make as explicit as possible to be what your judgments and claims are actually based on. So you're right. I think in the end, a lot of this stuff is still kind of non-conscious or implicit, which is okay. But this is about saying, let's slow down. Of course, the more you slow down, the less you let system one and those kind of things come into play, the more likely it is you will not be prone to some of those biases, is the argument anyway. Right, that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's something that you mentioned earlier about, um, well, one of the elements of evidence is access to research, scientific yeah. data, academic data. So uh, obviously there's a lot of sort of, I guess, controversy around um, you know, having access to that kind of stuff if you're no longer in academia or if, if you're, sure. you never were. Um, how do we, how do we A, get hold of that stuff and, and B, you know, do we, do we need to get hold of it? And is there sort of easier ways to get hold of yeah. something? Sure. Yes, there are. It's a really good question. I think it's often the part of the, I think all sources of evidence are difficult, but this is probably for many practitioners one of the hardest. So yeah, the first thing is, is it is important to try and get hold of it. So, I, but ideally, what you want to try and get hold of things like systematic reviews. Unfortunately, in management and HR, there aren't that many systematic reviews yet. That is kind of changing. Mm. The second thing is, I think, if you want to get a hold, obviously, a lot of the stuff is paywalled, as you're suggesting, yeah. and there's controversy about making all this of open access. There are ways around this. Uh, one is to, for example, check your, sometimes even in your local library, your local you get access to this stuff electronically if you're uh, your alumni if you've done a degree sometimes you can do it like that you can also join for example the center for evidence-based management we have a membership scheme and, and through that you can get access if you're in professional bodies in the uk such as cipd or the british psychological society you again can get access to some of this stuff but it is getting easier i would say so if you go for right. example to google scholar and type in something i was just talking about this some of the other day we're talking about generational differences at work so they were saying, oh, but how do you get hold of it? I said, well, go on to Google Scholar, type in generational differences out in the workplace evidence, that's it, mm -hmm. and just search. And typically you will find there are different versions of the paper. Some of them are paywalled, but more and more and more you'll find versions that are not paywalled, that are PDFs, that are pre-publication PDFs that are, for example, on universities' websites or on authors' own websites. So there are ways around it. But it's called, again, and also in the sense of evidence-based management, there's some guides about how to do this a bit quicker. Because it's important not just to look at one or two papers, but to try and find these systematic reviews or meta-analyses or something else. So that's mm. quite important as well, rather than just sort of pick one latest paper or find the paper you think is in the top journal, whatever happens to be. Right. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, Jess, sorry, I don't want to take no, over. No. I do have another question if you, if you don't. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so... Another one of the elements of evidence is internal data. And obviously mm. now, you know, with this sort of big data phenomenon, um, there's so much data. So how do you decide 
what to use and what not to use? How do you whittle that down into something that's useful? Yeah. In general, within evidence-based practice, you never start with evidence in the sense that you don't say, I've got all this evidence, because this is sort of reflects some of the sort of worst practice in scientific uh, literature as well. So you don't start with data and say, what can we say about the data? You typically say, well, what, what might be a problem? What do we think is a problem? What's telling us that this is a, an, an important problem opportunity for our organisational business? And then you start saying, well, we've got this idea this might be, so what kind of data do we have that might tell us something about it? And I think you're right. One of the problems having more and more and more data it doesn't mean you've got any more insight or any more useful evidence or any more useful information so you always be think very clearly about what is the sort of problem issue opportunity uh, that we think we may have and what is the information that's most likely to tell us something about that now that may exist already or it may not or you may have to do something to make it usable in some way so i think that's the first stage is to try and actually do that is actually say what is the problem or issue and then I think it often probably means, uh, perhaps sadly for some people, sort of discarding a lot of the stuff you've got, or at least not using it, because actually a lot of it, just because it's there doesn't mean you should use it. And I've certainly come across, I think we all probably have, many instances of people, you know, really having data such as, I don't know, absence data or something like uh, an attitude survey or something like employee turnover data. And they, because they've got it, they're determined to use it. So they'll see mm. this data they've got as the most important indicator of all the problems they've got. It might be, but the chances are it isn't. So once you've sort of discarded some of the stuff that's not so relevant and looked at the stuff that is, I think the next stage is actually to look at partly its quality and its reliability and trustworthiness, again, like you would for any source of information. Mm. So I think there's a lot, there's a, there's a big, a bit of a thing going on within HR and data analytics at the moment where people perhaps are getting I would say overly excited about the information and the data and the possibilities and algorithms and AI and they're forgetting why we're using this what are, yeah. what are we actually trying to do with this not yeah. isn't it cool yeah. uh, and of course as you know the classic examples where people say oh, we created this amazing algorithm and it sort of predicts you know we can predict Who's going to leave, you know, flight risk? And then you ask the question, well, is that is flight risk a problem? Oh, we don't know, but we can predict it. Oh, well done. But yeah. you don't even know if it's a problem. So that's a really, yeah. I think that's quite a nice example of people predicting stuff, but they don't know if it's important or not. Yeah. So I think, again, it's always the issue starting off, what do you think the problems or issues or opportunities are first, then saying, what information do we need to actually sort of say, is that going on? And if that is going on, what seems to be predicting it and therefore what can we do about it? Mm. So in a way, it's, it's a bit like it's a bit like always having that issue of critical thinking. Does this matter? What is it telling me? And again, as I always say to people, evidence-based practice is not about the evidence. It's about practice. It's about making right. decisions, doing things, trying to make a difference. It's not about the evidence itself, but it's trying to make more informed decisions. Yeah, it's practice that's evidence-based. <laughs> Yes, yeah, or evidence-informed or better-informed, exactly, yes, yes. Right. But I, th I, think, I think, you know, I've attended, you know, a few HR analytics conferences and heard people talk about this, and there is a sense of sort of, gee whiz, isn't this amazing? Look, we've predicted this stuff, and it's so decontextualised that mm. you really wonder how, if that in itself is helping organisations very much. I'm not that convinced. It mm. can, I'm sure it can in principle, but the stuff I've seen are not terribly impressive. I mean, it's impressive, if you like, statistically and analytically, but that's not impressive in any other way. Mm. 
And how do you think then that we can actually get HR practitioners to embrace this way of thinking before actually choosing what to either implement if, if or if it's a new fad that they're looking at? How can they change their way of thinking yeah. and, and adapt the better yeah. way? Yeah. Well, I, I, I suppose for me personally, I think I, I felt that perhaps telling people what evidence-based practice was was a good good idea. And then I think also perhaps um, sort of say, look, you're doing this stuff and maybe it's not very useful. Let's look at the evidence. It's maybe a good way of doing it. And I think they can help to some extent. But I think more important, and I don't know the answer to this, is to try and do something, and this has to come from the top or somewhere, but about changing the incentives that it seems to me many managers are placed under. People are rewarded for doing stuff. I think most people listening to this podcast who have a job in a large organization, even even a small organization, will recognize the fact that most of what they're rewarded for is doing stuff. Is that stuff important for the organization? Is the stuff they're doing more likely to work than something else? Generally speaking, people don't really know because it's harder to measure it's harder to understand whether what you're doing is important to the business it's hard to understand whether it's really making a difference so rather than looking at those things what organizations tend to do is take a very crude measure of performance which is activity how much have you done you know have you hit targets and i think until you change that it's very difficult to to encourage help practitioners in any field to be evidence-based and this is part of the issue you've probably heard these stories around medicine and medical related fields where like dentists are rewarded for giving kids fillings this is 20 30 years ago in the uk so what do they do they give kids fillings is that good no (laughs) it's what they get rewarded for similarly in academia i'd say you know what what are one of the things we're rewarded for is high student satisfaction scores is student satisfaction a good measure of learning absolutely not but that's it, that's easier to measure than actually where the students have learned anything. So we, we create these, if you like, perverse incentives for people to hit targets, do stuff, be seen to be active without thinking about, is this really making a difference? So I think that's, I don't know how you change that, but I think that's quite a big thing. So more recently, I've got interested in, that's an example of a barrier to evidence-based practice. I've got more interest in trying to understand and discuss these kinds of barriers, which I think, it seems to most people recognize and I think that's a starting point how you shift them I'm not so sure Mm. actually that sort of leads into our our next question which is do you think that the work that you're doing um with the the organization for evidence-based practice is is kind of shifting the needle do you think people are um you know looking to make changes is it happening yeah if only there was a needle if only there was a diet to look (laughs) right I don't know. I understand it's just a metaphor, but yeah. I don't. Okay, so I don't know. I'm not too sure. But given I've been interested for 20 years, I'd say definitely more people are interested now than 20 years ago. I would say definitely more people seem to be interested now than five years ago, than possibly three years ago. But in terms of numbers and how much, if there were a needle, how much that's shifting. I'm not so sure. But, for example, the fact that CIPD in the UK has said it's one of their principles seems to me to be a sort of shift. The fact that there are more business schools teaching evidence-based management than there were is is a bit of a shift. But, of course, it's still a tiny, tiny percentage of all the business schools in the world. Uh, The fact the centre's growing a little bit is an indication as well. So I think think it's shifting a little bit, whether that Mm. shift is 
big or small. I don't know quite how you judge it. But certainly it's moving a little bit, but it, but it is slowly. And I would say from another perspective, I think it's better if it's slow because I don't want, no one really wants evidence-based management to become the next fad. The people mm. think it's wonderful. Everyone tries to do it and then they abandon it for the next thing. So I think mm-hmm. the fact it's happening slowly is not a bad thing at all because it is difficult. Uh, it, it does take more effort. It is a bit more challenging, but it depends on what you're trying to do. If you want to do things that are important, as I say, for your organisation, if you want to do stuff that's more likely to work, this seems like a useful approach. But it's not a kind of, you know, magic bullet. You know, it's not going to happen overnight. So it's a longer term thing anyway. But yes, I think there are some shifts around. And some people have argued, I'm not sure if it's right, that kind of with certain political changes going on at the moment, the idea of post-truth or that kind of idea and having to fact check stuff. One argument is, well, actually evidence-based stuff is becoming even less relevant because nobody cares. Another argument is, well, actually it's becoming even more relevant because people are really starting to worry, or some people are in question, you know, what we're being told, the information that's out there, are people deliberately kind of misinforming us, and maybe there's more awareness that we need to be careful about that. So I, I think I can see both arguments. So, But I think I think it, there may be something in that, yeah. And um, how... If or when, depending on which view you have, if um, organizations all adapt the evidence-based way, how do you think the workplace would be different to what it is today? Good question. So I think I think it'd be different. So the first thing I think I said, I said before, I think there'd be a massive difference in how people think about performance, about how particular managers' decision-making performed. It wouldn't be so much about activity and success and outcome. It would be much more focused on the processes they went through and took. So it will be about, did you go through a sort of, sort of due diligence thinking about what this problem was? Did you, were you explicit, conscious and judicious? Did you think about multiple possible solutions? Did you compare them? Did you think about which is more likely to work? Did you go through that process rather than did it work or not? Because obviously there's a lot of, you know, things work just by chance. So I think it'll be much more about the process. And also I think, I think what you also find is much uh, more focus on the problem or the issue. Mm-hmm. So I think a perennial, I think, issue in management and, and political decision-making, all kinds of decision-making, is people don't want to spend much time <clears throat> thinking about what the problem or issue is. So in some of the training we sometimes do, we might, say, have a day with a team. We'll say, OK, so in the morning, all we're going to do is we're going to spend some time thinking about a specific problem or issue opportunity facing the organisation. We're just going to do that. We're just going to try and understand what that problem issue is. In the afternoon, we're going to start thinking about what you can do about that, if indeed there is some problem or issue opportunity there. And what, of course, is perhaps not surprising, but it's astounding, is within 10 or 15 minutes, everyone is onto the solution Mm. in the morning. Mm. So you kind of say, no, 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 we're going to do that this afternoon. And I think that desire to go into sort of solution mode is incredibly strong. So I think what the difference you'd see is, Partly it's rewarding people for different things, but also think people spend a lot more time thinking about and being careful about what the what is the problem, what is the issue. Because again, mm. I think most of us can relate to situations where we've spent a lot of time implementing some solution to something, and actually in retrospect, we didn't really know what the problem was. But we spent a lot of time, effort, energy, and resources on implementing something for an undiagnosed, un- misunderstood non-problem probably so i think there'd be that and i think also going on with that i think there'd be a lot more expressions of uncertainty and doubt 
So again, people are typically not rewarded for saying, I don't know, I'm not sure, maybe. People are rewarded mm. for certainty. So I think there'd be a lot more people, you know, expressing doubt where they had it, genuine doubt. And also I think you'd see it, it would kind of, I think people would be a bit slower in some respects. Decision-making would be slower. It'd be more structured. It'd be more thoughtful, be more conscious. It'd be more over time rather than just kind of firefighting, kind of panic mode, those sorts of things. Again, something else we find in training is when you ask people, well, do you think you could do this, evidence-based management in your organization, one of the responses is no, we don't have time. We have to make urgent decisions. Mm-hmm. One of the questions we then say to people is, okay, uh, just think for a few minutes, can you, can you give me an example of a decision you had to make really, 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 really quickly in the last couple of months, six months, year? Typically, people can't think of any. And where they can think of one is because it wasn't really urgent. They knew it was coming, but they basically left it to the a week before. So it became mm. urgent. Yeah. So, yes, of course, there are circumstances where you need to make quick urgent decisions. But actually, typically, you don't. But the reason we don't is because we don't like doing that analysis bit because it's just harder work. It's not so much fun. It feels like you're not doing anything. It feels a bit negative to sort of say, what is the problem? What is the issue? Do we understand it? People really enjoy, let's roll this out. Let's make this happen. Let's implement it. Let's do something. That Mm -hmm. feels like fun or something or doing something, whereas analyzing problem doesn't feel like doing something. No, but perhaps that's also then... mm. Yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, perhaps that's also then tied to the fact that if if you're saying that it's results-based currently, the, the workplace, and it's all about the results that you're bringing, doing stuff. And if you're sitting around thinking or analyzing, you're not seen as doing something. Yeah. So perhaps that's the reason that would make sense. I think that, absolutely think that's right. So, the, I mean, you know, we sadly may have reached a situation where thinking is not seen as doing anything anymore. Mm. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> the idea yeah. that, you know, thinking about stuff doesn't count mm. because you can't see it. You know, you can't look inside someone's head. So it doesn't sort of be rushing around doing things, having meetings, initiatives, that's doing something. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I think certainly I'll say many functions of ma- management, including HR, they don't have a problem doing stuff. Doing stuff is not their issue. They're good yeah. at doing stuff. Doing stuff that's important and there's more right to work is the problem. And that requires analysis, thinking, using the best available evidence. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So... Actually, on that, sort of one last question before I, I head mm. on to our, our final section. Um, sure. So do you think that we have the skills in-house, you know, in general, to to be able to to do those things, to, to um, you know, access all of this evidence mm. and evaluate it effectively? And do you think there's, there's almost a call for a specific role yeah. where there's a person who can take on that that challenge yeah that's a very good question i'm not too sure where do we have those skills or not so certainly think there's some sort of skills say around reading academic journal articles reading scientific papers but they're very trainable they're very teachable they're not they're not yeah. that difficult the same is true with most data analytics stuff you probably need to do and the other sources of evidence as well but I do think there's probably either, it's either a role or it's where you change roles or it's the way you design teams to say, yeah, actually, people need to be, you know, to be the people to ask those critical questions, to slow people down, to keep pushing, to make sure people stay on track. So there could be a role around that because it's, you know, I think the, certain the training I've done, it's clear not everybody likes doing this, not everybody enjoys it, uh, mm. which is not surprising. Some people are, are much 
happier trying to sort of plan things, arrange things, logistically work out how to do stuff. They're not so interested in the analytic bit. So, yes, you might have some sort of division of labour. There might be a particular role. Uh, some people have argued you might need like an evidence-based champion or an evidence champion in organisations. So you might have, you know, you have like a chief information officer yeah. or some organisation. Maybe that's a role for somebody who's there to say, OK, we do need information evidence. So I'm, it's part of my role to make sure that we have access to that, that it's relevant, that it's high quality and that people know how to use it. Mm. So, yes, it could be a role for something, someone like that as well. But broadly speaking, I think some of this stuff, again, in my, my limited experience of doing the training of it, I think people kind of get it. If you give people day-to-day -day examples about do you trust the information on TripAdvisor, yeah. Then people start yeah. talking about it. And you, and you kind of say, to me, what you're doing now is critical appraisal. You're saying, can I trust this information? You're mm -hmm. trying to understand where does it come from? Uh, mm -hmm. Could it be biased? What is it telling me? Why might it be biased? In what way? How can I? And so people don't not get how to do this. But I think there's something about being in an organization, in a job, the way you're rewarded that pushes you away from doing some of that you know, normal due diligence. You know, some people have joked that a CEO might spend, and this is a kind of old-fashioned example, might spend more time looking at the evidence and making an informed decision about their next company car than they would about a decision about a merger with another organisation. So it's yeah. something that people will do when it's important enough and they're interested to do it. So I think, I think maybe I'm a bit, you know, over-optimistic, but I have faith that people, after all, evidence-based practice didn't come from outer space or from God. Yeah. It came from the way people, you know, in everyday life do sometimes process information and make decisions, but it's kind of trying to formalise it and getting some of the best bits of that and trying to put it in a structure. So going back to your question, do you need a special role? Yes, I think in a way you probably do need champions or people with particular expertise, but it also should be something that everyone feels able to do as well, I think. Yes, that makes sense. Hmm. Um, Okay, uh, I think we're going to wrap it up there. We sure. um, we do have a, a, what we call our final three, which is sort of a lighter note to round off. Um, well, that wasn't light enough? That wasn't light enough? <laughs> it was incredibly insightful. <laughs> That's what it was. Um, yeah, no, th thank you, Rob. Very light, very light and fresh. And, and light, yeah. yes. <laughs> very much so. Um, okay, so our first question is, given the choice of anyone in the world... Whom oh would you God. want as a dinner guest? Wow, well, that's a good question. I'm really, I'm really bad at these questions. <laughs> Who would I want as a dinner guest? Well, given my levels of gluttony, I think I can't think of a particular person, but the qualities of that person would be that they really like to talk and chat and argue about stuff. That'd be quite important. Mm -hmm. And also that they were really into food and drink and, and were kind of, you know, yeah, back an alien in there, whatever. Because I think that, for me, makes always makes for a good dinner guest. So those two things. But So I can't think of a good person in history or anything or now, but I think they'd have to have those qualities, yeah. I think yeah. I could be your dinner guest. <laughs> good, well, okay, let's do it. Um, and the second question, how do you define happiness? How do I define it? You mean personally? Personally, yeah. Unless you want to draw mm. from your academic research well it's tricky isn't it given it's one of those things i actually have researched and studied mm. uh i think i think for me personally in general i think i think happiness can mean a lot of different things it's a very multi-level multifaceted things and i think 
one of the things that's happened, I think, with the commodification of happiness in politics and organisations and, and in, you know, in, in society, is it's become a kind of thing you have to be. And it's become like it's too low. He's got to get it higher. And it's become this kind of quite one-dimensional thing. So for me personally, I think it also based on, you know, my limited understanding of the, the kind of literature around this. I think this combination of basically day-to-day -day stuff. So day-to-day -day experiences are very, very sort of important to me in terms of my happiness. That the, the kind of every day I like to have small, ordinary stuff, walking through a park, whatever, whatever it is. I think that kind of everyday... You know, chicks in the high flow kind of stuff is very important but also i think the there's more structural things around happiness in terms of thinking you know do i feel reasonably confident about the future can i plan for the future those kinds of things the kinds of stuff that we know say people who are in poverty or people who are unemployed they lose that ability because they just cannot plan they cannot mm -hmm. think about the future and that's mm -hmm. a kind of killer in terms of you know happiness and well-being so i think having that that combination of the day-to-day -day stuff but also the structural stuff and resources to enable you to think yeah i can think ahead i can think beyond this week or next week or a month's time and yeah because lots of us don't lots of people don't have that luxury of being able to do that so i think it's those two things really yeah okay yeah okay and one final question which you can relate either to you know what we've been talking about today or you can yeah. relate it to a personal um experience what scares you what scares me well there's a tweet so a friend of mine tweeted the other day she said if somebody if somebody doesn't like you asking questions or somebody tries to stop you asking questions even that. difficult one. Did you see it? I thought she, I she did. said that is a, that is just well, that's a red flag, and I said, yeah, it's a red flag. It's alarm bells. It's mm -hmm. sirens. It's and that scares me. And right. the idea that, that that being able to or being allowed to or, or being inhibited from asking questions of what's around you that that scares me. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So you saw that tweet too. Interesting. I did yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and I, yeah. I li liked it and agreed to it. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah. Um, as soon as we stop asking questions, that's when everything's going to just go wrong, really. Yeah. Uh, it's vital. It's vital. Yeah, and as soon as we feel we can't or we're stupid for asking them or, or we'll get into trouble for asking them, yeah. you know. And, that, and of course, that, and that goes on in, you know, I mean, to, you know, whatever, back, take it back to the workplace. That goes on in the workplace a lot. I mean, if you have, mm. again, if you talk to anyone about their job and their work or reflect about your own job, how often do people feel they can't say, excuse me, what about this, what about that? And again, it's also back to mm -hmm. evidence-based practice. You know, it's a fundamental principle of it. You ask questions, you know, what's going yes. on? Why do we think that? Why do we know that? Why is that a problem? Why do you think that? Why do they, th you know? But often yeah. people feel really quite inhibited from doing that. So it scares me on a sort of general level, but also I think it's very, it's very kind of dysfunctional in organisations. But it seems to, unfortunately, be quite, certainly the organisations I know, quite the norm, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And perhaps that's why evidence-based doesn't always work, because questions may yeah. not always be allowed. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Right. Okay. I think Good that time. was it. So thank you thank so you very much, much for joining, Rob. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you Great. for all those fabulous Thanks for listening to the Business Psychology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our discussion today. Join us next time with a brand new topic. Please tune in then.